Welcome back to the Locker Room Podcast, episode number 71, um, I believe. I think last time I was on here about three or four ago, so haven't seen me for a while as a host. Um, delighted to be joined today by Alan Byrne, or, or as he or many people call him, is Allo. So I'll make sure I, I, I get that right throughout. Um, who's currently the, the Community Education Development Officer at the CDETB, and, and he'll go on to explain a little bit more about that and the abbreviation, and also the Director of Coaching at Lord Celtic Football Club. And Alan, it's good. It's obviously a pleasure to welcome you tonight. And it's good to, to talk to a fellow, I guess, soccer coach um, or someone working within that field as well. So welcome, mate. Thanks, Ross. I'm always caught up as to whether to call it soccer or football. Um, it's, one, it's one of those things in Ireland as well, isn't it? Because when we say football, it's kind of, we presume it's gated football. Yeah. So um, yeah. I'm happy to stick with soccer. Um, but yeah, great to be here. Go on have a chat about, about all things uh, soccer. Yeah, no, brilliant. It's a pleasure to have you on. And just for the listeners, as usual, please head over to the website. Um, loads of things going on, of course, the podcast, but loads of different videos being put up and, and different little initiatives as, as most of the Gaelic clubs are starting their, their, their pre-season and the county clubs are back now as well. So, yeah, it's uh, have a little look over there for anyone who, who hasn't checked it out and how to be a part of the community, I guess. Um Alan, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, delve straight in. And as I spoke to you briefly before, like some of the roles um, in Ireland around like development officers and stuff like that isn't as prevalent, I guess, over here because things are a little bit more academy based and stuff like that. And especially a director of coaching role really interests me. Do you want to just take your listeners through maybe a little chronological order of, of how you got to this point? Because your your career is very diverse. So I think it'd be really interesting for the listeners to, to hear that and, and, and where you are currently today. Yeah, sure thing. So my main role, or the, the role that pays the bills, I guess, is um, I work for the City of Dublin Education Training Board. And in that role, I'm a community education development. I work as a community education development worker within an area called Region 4 in Dublin. That's primarily responsible for kind of setting up community education courses within the community um, and supporting tutors that work within our colleges in that area. So that's my kind of non-sporting role. In terms of the sporting side of things, um, you mentioned director of coaching or director of football. Um, it is a, a new kind of role. I'm in the role eight years. This is my last year in the role and I'm moving on um, now in the summer. So um, because I'm spinning too many plates at the minute and I want to spend time and get to know my kids, to be quite honest. It's a role that takes up a lot of time. How I got here was at the club I'm currently DOC at, um, Lord Celtic. I played here, played my football here um, as a schoolboy footballer. I, I, did, I never played professionally. I, I never played semi-professional football. I, was, I just played grassroots football. But I had a, a very big interest in coaching from a young age. So I kind of went and done some of the UEFA licenses, as you do. And then I ended up going on to do a diploma in sports management, a degree in sports science, um, master's in teaching. And I've kind of gone down that road. And as I've been doing that, I've been doing little roles at clubs like strength and conditioning coach. Um, and then I stepped in when the previous director of coaching took a bit of time out of the club. I stepped into the role um, for a number of months. And that kind of gave me a little bit of a, let me say, flavour of what the role was. And I enjoyed the idea of education within sport. And the club then developed a, a role in that area, um, which I came back and took up in 2016, I think it would have been. Um, so for the past eight seasons, I've been involved here running the coach education syllabus, liaising with the Football Association of Ireland, Sport Ireland, um, and generally responsible for the coach and player development within the club. And that's one small strand of, of kind of what I do. And there's, there's lots of other things like we have a special Olympic section in the club, uh, a large football for all section in the club, which is for boys, girls, men, women um, with additional needs. So again, it would be supporting the growth and development of that section and the particular needs of the coaches and the players in that area. Um, and we have our community programs in the club as well. So we've over 600 kids in the club, um, over 100 coaches and volunteers, a committee, and other support structures in the background so it's kind of you wear many hats doing the role it's not all soccer it's not all training pitch stuff there's a bit of admin to it there's a bit of stakeholder relationship work to it and um, but of course you do spend time on the football pitch naturally as well and um, coaching children because that's kind of what I spent most of my volunteer years doing you know yeah, sounds really interesting. And, and just before we delve into, I guess, some more technical questions, like you, you trained as many things, so uh, football coach, uh, SNC, sports science, and and also teacher as well. I'm really interested in the link between teaching and coaching because I feel that the best coaches often have a teaching background because they understand 
how kids learn. And essentially, when you're working with kids, I always say it's, it's a learning process um, for the kids and, and through many different hats on, whether it's psych, social and, uh, or technical, tactical, or, or even just them being having a good time and investing in that as part of their lifestyle. Talk to me how influential your teaching background is on your coaching and, and where you think the transfer is. Um, mainly the last 10 to 15 years, and I'll tell you why. So when I went back to recession hit Ireland in 2000 and probably nine to 12, those years, and I had a business at the time, um, I made curtains and window blinds, you know, but I was still volunteer coaching. Um, and my wife said to me, why don't you go back to college and study something to do with, with soccer? And I kind of laughed and said, Sure, there's no jobs in Ireland for that. There's no, there's no way at it. What's the point, you know? But I did. I ended up going back to education um, when I was about 30 years of age. I'm mid-40s now. And I went back and studied a diploma in soccer management in a college called Pierce College. And I met a tutor called James Claffey, who was a sports psych. And he introduced me then to people like um, John Wooden, um, and that kind of Phil Jackson type coaches and the coaches I wouldn't have considered in different sports. Um, and he talked about kind of the word I came across that word pedagogy for the first time, kind of a pedagogy, if you want to pronounce it that way, and kind of how children learn and the theory of, of learning. And I realized that some of the things and theories in, in that, that realm, a lot of coaches do already. Um, they may not have a vast understanding of the theoretical concepts behind it, but they, they use play as a tool for learning. They use discovery, they use creativity, and um, whether that be through an SSG or games-based approach. Um, not all do, some do, but, but, but coaching is teaching. There's a fantastic book by a guy, Dublin Off, same thing. I think it's of that, that name, coaching is teaching. Or it's, um, I think when we coach, we teach, and we, we, that's, it can be lost on us sometimes, and, and that's what you are doing. You're teaching somebody a skill something they may not know or learn it could be from a very low base level of technical skill but you're teaching a skill it's the same way you'll teach somebody to drive a car the same way you'll teach them a mathematics or English. you're teaching a skill so to me they're not really inseparable and it's the same thing you know yeah yeah no i, I totally agree and we'll come on to some of the techniques and it's a games-based approach and constraints led theory and things like that a bit later on but there's huge influence there and i just wanted to get your views on you've in ireland you, you you've grown up more from the soccer you played um at the club you're you're, you're a director of football at now do you think there's do you think there's many transferable skills or do you think there's other sports we're huge in the gaelic uh daily sports science and locker room podcast great gaelic uh following I always feel that there's a little bit of disconnect between the sports and that not everybody's singing up the same hymn sheet. And as you said, regardless of the sport, we're teaching a skill and we're teaching whether it's grassroots level or, or you know, top end amateur county level to perform. Um, do you think, why do you think that is that disconnect? And, and do you think certain sports are ahead of others? Yeah, um, we're unique in a lot of ways in this country in that we have a population of little over, if you include the North world as well, over 5 million. Um, but we've three major sports in soccer and um, all the Gaelic sports, which are a number of sports, as you know, um, hoarding and football. And we've also rugby. So we have a small population and the bigger populations are around our cities. The rural areas, obviously, smaller populations. Funding will often dictate facilities, which will often dictate the level of coaching and um, the club is able to provide. Um, the Gaelic Athletic Association get a lot of funding. The football for a time got a lot of funding which wasn't handled quite well with our own association um, and rugby gets a lot of funding. Now what happens, what tends to happen in Ireland, there's no research on it per se and I can't, I can only kind of guess as to why it is. We take a very siloed approach to, to sport. So you either play Gaelic sports, you either play soccer or you play rugby or one of the other sports, athletics or um, tennis or the fringe sports as we call them. There seems to be this tendency to kind of force kids into that single sport modality from a young age, whether it comes down to a lack of education amongst the clubs, the coaches or the organisations. But there is a very siloed approach of if a kid plays soccer, that's all they play. And I've seen it at very young ages. I've seen it go as low as eight, where there's this commodification of they want to become National League players at maybe 12, 13. So what the parents do is that they put them into academies we call them academies here you might have a different definition of an academy but we think of it more like a nursery they come in at the age of four or five 
and they learn the kind of the fundamentals, the basics of, of soccer. But what tends to happen and what I'm seeing more and more happening is parents are siloing or pushing their kids towards that single sport variant because they believe that if they play multi-sport, that it's it's deemed to be a lack of commitment or a lack of, um, I don't know, stuff like the 10 hours and hours can feed into that narrative a little bit. I think people get caught up in that. The more you practice in the one sport, the better you be where realistically we do know um, from the research and from practitioners in the area that the transferability of skills, there's a, there's a rich opportunity for transferability of skills from Gaelic football to soccer, from rugby to soccer and vice versa. Um, we, we're either not aware of it or we're not willing to open up to the fact that it will benefit us long term or we're overly focused on short-term gains. So we're not looking at the LTAD, but where we say, well, it would be really beneficial for all these children to play a number of these sports while they can, up until an age where they need to specify or, you know, but um, we're a bit behind in that in that nature, I feel. Yeah, really interesting you say that. I think um, similar here, especially in the academy system where things become elite, and I say elite for like eight-year-olds, it's, it's, it's ridiculous that it's called that, but they they feel that they have to put all of their energy into that that um, that experience. One one thing that like sticks out to me, and when we went into London Gaelic like a long time ago now, six years ago, uh, maybe even seven years ago, little things like like Gaelic um, defending is always 1v1 and man v man, whereas like there's transferable skills around like doing two jobs and covering your your mate and first defender and things like that. And there's some examples the other way. We would surely benefit from not only the physical benefits of playing different sports, but also the tactical benefits. You think of basketball and how they defend and, um, you know, exploit space, deny the central area, let it go wide, the things like that. Do you think there's so many benefits across the board that could come into different sports without us having to explicitly coach those tactics? Yeah, definitely. The game, I hate using the term, the game will coach it, but the profile of the sport will dictate the movements and the rules of the sport, etc. So if you think of these type of games we're talking about, they're, they're your typical field-based invasion games that require overloads, underloads, um, occupying space, denying space, um, explosivity, multi-directional movement, using all of the same energy systems that they would um so when you paint a picture like that and you're going to say to parents look this is really going to help them in some ways um there's, there's a comedic element to this as well i watched an under 11s game the weekend where a kid jumped up and caught the ball and then dropped it immediately and apologized to the referee and the referee <laughs> yeah. was just in fits of laughter because the kid had obviously played a Gaelic football game the day before and it was it was just a natural reaction to the ball being in the air but but to me that showed that was a classic example of there is an element of transferability in motion. Yeah, natural, natural. Natural like, transferability, that kid's yeah. reaction, his cognitive reaction is to jump, catch that ball, raise the knee to protect himself. Um, it's not your typical jump as it with your hands, using your hands to elevate the head, the ball. You know, so it's it's a different biomechanical movement, but I just thought it, there was a nicety to it. As funny as it was, you know, you lose possession or free kick. But I honestly think if we can paint that picture for kids that, not even kids, I'd even say parents, Ross, at the young ages, because they're the ones that make the, the, the decisions. And it's, I'd often say to people, why are we so uncomfortable with letting kids decide who they become? Mm-hmm. We're constantly bet down with this thing of it has to be one or the other, one or the other sport where realistically, um, and then clubs clubs play a part too, Ross, because I've seen clubs say you, you must train twice a week. You must train three times a week where it might clash with a gated football session or martial arts or swimming lessons or something and I've seen coaches at under nine kind of more or less say to parents you must commit to two two nights a week and if you don't there'll be reduced game time so it's that kind of adultification of children's sport where we try and impose rules at these young ages but it really doesn't lean into how kids learn yeah no really spot on really well said totally agree with that um it doesn't matter if they only train once a week oh, that, that shouldn't impair anything at that age and you know what are we trying to achieve with that player you know long term long-term development holistically, I guess. So, yeah, very well said. Um, Moon, sorry, I, I diverse there a little bit from the script, so apologies. Come into one of your, I guess, one of your passionate areas first. I just want to get your thoughts on this, because I think it's something that is maybe a little bit misunderstood or people don't um, delve into it as much, and maybe some even dismiss it. It's this whole uh, psychological, social aspect of not only grassroots, but I think performance rates huge what's your area within that? What's your passion within that? And how do you go about developing that at different stages? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a difficult question to answer as well, because uh, you're talking about individuals when you pose that question and 
like like it's really understanding that people that play sport it's something they do it's not who they are like sport is something by which they express themselves whether it be children or adults i'll apply this to adults too um and it's it's kind of asking the simple questions like if it's a child in sport we we, we tend to if we're going to do something let's say put on an extra training session or something it's thinking about every children every child in that training session and saying well look there's two children will have to travel two hours to get here would it not be better for them to spend the night at home this week they've already had two or three training sessions yeah that's kind of a holistic that's more of a biopsych social way of looking at things consulting with the parents and asking them what kind of jobs do you have do you have jobs where you're rushing to get here on time and altering your training times to suit the needs of the children and the parents because biopsych takes into account the support structure yeah and it's not a cookie cutter approach to training where we just say these are the times we train at this is what we do in training it's taken into account all the, the constraints, the physical constraints, the, the training age, the biological maturation constraints, the who who they are, what type of day they've had. Um, are you coaching children? So we've children in the club now have come from Ukraine. There's an element of trauma. You know, um, are grassroots coaches trained to deal with that? No. But if they understand a little bit about the biopsych element of it, they'll understand to ask to, to listen in the right way, not listen to respond. To listen to here to take into account people's personal um situations and um, what they're able to do you know and what they're able to commit to um and and coaching for the long term um i'd often say kind of coach the child in front of you not the adult you want them to become and it goes back to that why are we so concerned without not letting kids determine their own future like it's we almost map out what we want them to become we we've an image in our head of what we want them to become based on maybe our prior experiences and hang-ups rather than kind of letting them have a voice in the whole thing and say well look give us some i don't say to coaches like don't be afraid of feedback talk to your players yeah but they're only eight or nine but they've got a voice and they have rights and like talk to them you know see what see what's working for them what not's working because if you get to know the person underneath or behind the sport you're going to be in a much better position to be able to coach and build relationships with them and not just build relations, but maintain those relationships as they get older and mature into young men and women. Um, it's probably more important to me, and this is a personal preference than any of the tech tech um SNC side of things, because if you don't have the ability to have to foster those relationships, the social side of sport, everything else is gonna be much harder to do. 100 percent Technical, tactical. Um, you know, it's uh it's a key ingredient, but I think sometimes we can get caught up in the language of it. Holistic, biopsychosocial, they're very academic terms. Yeah. Um, realistically, it's kind of, are you listening to your players? Do they listen to you? Do you do you take time to get to know them as people um, and their parents? Um, if they're older and they've got jobs and family, are you going to drag them out of their home three nights a week when their wife has had a new baby? Is it more conducive to them to spend time at home with their family at that point? Um, these are the key questions we have to ask. You know, it's it's taking into account the whole person rather than what you want them to become, I suppose. Yeah, really good answer. We have an approach here. Instead of a four-corner model, like the psychosocial underpins every, every corner, as you said, because there's such a knock-on effect to the physical outcome, the technical, tactical, so you can't neglect it. I think the understanding you had is, is excellent. The tricky thing is then how many individuals are within that, that training group and then how many different things do you need to apply and different techniques like little tweaks to to uh, you know get the most out of every child that's the hardest thing that you get over experience i think yeah and what you mentioned earlier what has teaching got to do with coaching one of the the big theories in around um teaching i suppose and it's it's kind of a mainstay and there there is challenges to it in research but there's some niceties to it is the, the maslow's hierarchy so if you go back to kind of the bottom of that pyramid of Maslow, the hierarchy of needs, and he talks about what each human needs, and you have your food, shelter, water, warmth, um, your basic human needs, and until you have those needs met, you're not able to learn, you're not able to develop, you're not able to achieve anything higher. So realistically, you want adults and children coming to you that feel safe, that have a secure family support network around them, that are eating three meals a day, that are not coming feeling another human need that supersedes anything else beyond that because how could they be in a position um to learn and how could we place expectations on them to learn if their basic human needs are not even met 
Yeah. And we have to consider that when we consider the individual because we're working, we're a multicultural society now. Not everybody has fantastic support backgrounds. Not every child comes from a secure home. Um, and we really do have to take that into account when we think of coaching the individual within a team sport. Yeah, totally agree. And, and one of the things that like, I really like is having two two different coaches coaching an age group where, you know, I, I worked best, I would say, with another coach a couple of years ago who's not at the club anymore. And he was completely different, completely different background to me, um, different faith. And he could connect to some players that I couldn't connect to that on that personal level and vice versa. So it's like it's having those individuals around. Like you said, you have unconscious bias based on your own experiences. So that can feed into how you interact with children and how you interact with people, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And even having other people around, it's an extra set of ears and eyes, isn't it? And it's 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 a sounding board for yourself as a coach to say, did I handle that well? Yeah. You know, did because you know when it when a ball um when a ball is kicked, I said sometimes rationality goes out the window, doesn't it? And we become we kind of follow the ball. We're like a VO camera. We're like a human VO camera. I'd say VO cameras were around before they were around themselves because we were that. We followed the ball and we got caught up in the moment. Um, and sometimes that can be very hard to see actually what's being said and heard of the game. So having somebody else there, you know, what are the substitutes doing? Are, they, are the kids okay? Are they getting enough game time? Are the parents okay? You know, yeah. are we sticking Are we sticking to what we said we do in training? Does, does the match day... Are, are we coaching them with the same temperament and, and tone of voice and a nice relaxed tone as we are um, in training as opposed to match day? Because sometimes it's, I call it Jekyll and Hyde. Um, we're a different person on the training pitch sometimes, especially grassroots coaches, than, they, than on the pitch. They get caught up in the moment and maybe it's that age-appropriate thing where in their heads, and I, I'm guilty of this, we were in our head, we're Jurgen Klopp, you know, but realistically, it's they're still kids. Um you know, there's a bit of there's a bit of that going on, but yeah, it is good to have other eyes and ears around you, definitely. No, really well said. Um, one quick question before we move on, and something I was going to skim over earlier. You said there about following the ball, and it just triggers something. Like one of the good things about, I think, in soccer, the coaching badges, which I don't think like define you as a really good coach or not, because there are processes you have to go through. But one of the things I like about it is working away from the ball. So even whether it's tactically or even just behaviours, you're not fixated on the ball each time. You're looking away at the movements and, you know, things like that. Who is the Gaelic, is Gaelic football and hurling, are they missing a trick with these kind of mandatory coaching badges? And I know there's like level, I know there's ones available, but they're not so, they're not as rigorous as the, as the soccer ones. Do you think they could aid the coaching in other sports? Definitively, I can't say yes or no, but what I will say is there. I know there are levels in, in Gaelic football um, slightly different to UEFA in that UEFA will kind of dictate what levels of coaching badges go out and then the home associations can add in filler courses themselves. So we, we'd have that with the FEI here. I suppose the coaching badges are like competencies. Yeah. So it's that kind of thing of, you know, it can help you structure, learn structure. It can help you learn processes like like you said, coach on the ball, around the ball, away from the ball. It can it can help you with that kind of thing. Uh, doesn't really improve your ability to communicate what you've learned. Yeah. So, I, the way I I kind of thing I'd say about coaching badges sometimes is that there's people that have coaching badges that maybe shouldn't have coaching badges. The people that have dog licenses that shouldn't have dogs, and there's people that have driving licenses that are not necessarily fantastic drivers. So, um, that's not to take away from the process. I think it's important that we. We're qualified, we're educated, we're competent. Um, but I, I think rather than rush through the badges and see them as a way to validate how well, how good we are as coaches, if we spend an equal amount of time on the pitch actually practicing what we learn, that will add to our, our, our ability to be able to become that better coach. Yeah, very good answer. Very good answer. Um, okay, let's move on to a little bit more around the coaching. Let's delve into things a little bit deeper. Um just want to get your take on, and this could go in any direction you want to take it really, quite globally, talking a little bit more about children. So what's your philosophy on how we coach children in general, how you design sessions, you know, and based, I guess based on the pedagogy and, and different theoretical stuff that you've come through your education, how children learn. And it's very individual, I understand that. But what's your take on, here's my one-stop shop of just explaining how I coach children? trial and error over the years I would have imposed adult type structures on children when I started out coaching because I probably went to the nearest resource I could or I probably coached how I was coached you know let's start a rondo let's go into some sprints and let's 
work away with a small sided game or attack via defence. But realistically, we, we were working on attack defence transitions within games and we probably didn't know. We just hadn't got a name on it at the time. In terms of children, we I kind of strip it back to how they learn. They, they learn through play and creativity. Um, I try and make what I call problem-rich environments. So rather than tell them, this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it and be overly prescriptive, which might work better with the adult player um, because they want more information. They're more along the, instead of pedagogy, it's more adult learning, kind of andragogy type where they're there for a reason and they want to add to their existing knowledge. Children are building from a, a creative level where it's more discovery based. So I would guide the sessions, leaning towards the kind of constraint side of things. But realistically, I, I don't even call it constraints based. I just call it look options within the game or scenarios within the game, change the dimensions of the pitch, move the, the direction of where the goals are going to be, put different, um, I won't say limits on it, but but little constraints in terms of zones or areas of the pitch they may have to pass in or dribble in. Um, yeah. Simple little topics like, can we play true around or over? You know, yeah. Or if they play a ball true and break a line, I don't put a terminology on it, but I just say, did you see that pass? Why did that work? And let's strip it back from there. So rather than kind of tell them beforehand what we're looking for them to do and ask them to do it, I'll try and spotlight it in the game. Um, so if I'm looking at a session that's kind of playing through the towards or getting them to build up and they do it really well, I'll highlight it within the game and I'll say, that's exactly what we're looking for. Why did it work well? Because they need to know they're building existing knowledge. They're building new knowledge. Yeah. Whereas adults are building on existing knowledge. So with kids, I'd base it around that kind of Piaget, the play, play-based stuff where we we do a lot of play-based things so for argument's sake the session there i took this evening under nines we're working on just kind of dribbling both feet in tight areas part of a warm-up we've three players with footballs that are chasing the other players the only way you can catch the other players is if you still have a ball at your feet sounds really simple but their eyes are up straight away yeah because they're, they're trying to and there's a bit of agility based work in it there's, there's a bit of the mechanics of moving within the area. There's a bit of scanning involved and it doesn't take a big massive session plan and it's fun, it's enjoyable and it hits on all the learning points um, and outcomes that you're trying to achieve with the children. So just play, discovery, guided discovery, ask lots of, of open-ended questions which allow them, allow dialogue both ways. Um, ask them what they like, ask them what they don't like. So audit your own sessions as the weeks go by. To, to find out what they're liking about the sessions, what they're not liking, yeah. you know, and just constant input. Because if you don't get that, it becomes a one-way conversation because they see you as the authority and it's kind of like, we're going to just take, it's like banking information. We're just giving them information like a reservoir. It's like filling a pit, you know, but we need to get something back out. So we need we need to know what's happening. Is there learning happening? Or is it just prescriptive, overly prescriptive? Yeah. I really like the way you've explained that because I've had a lot of um, a lot of debates with the games-based approach. Um, you know, I'd say people the the, the real extreme games-based approach um, in different sports, but I think the scenario-based coaching and what you said it's still a game, but you've manipulated just certain things to get the required outcomes that you want. And of course, there's times where it's just to play a free-play game and you just want to see them in that match scenario. Of course, like that's a massive part of my coaching, but manipulating certain things and spotlighting like good examples and maybe examples where things could have been a bit better within that game, I think is a lot more powerful than just saying, okay, here's the, here's, here's the game, figure it out. Because I think for top, the top 5%, you might get people to flourish, but especially in grassroots and players, they do need a little bit of guidance and they need a little bit of, at times, a little bit of shifting in, in each direction to, to just adjust their thought process. Yeah. And even on that, Ross, like you said, it's, it's, I think you know yourself from academia can be, we can be caught into this silver bullet solution mindset. So one once once there's no perfect system or no perfect methodology for developing players because if there is, someone will have found it by now and they're going to win the World Cup every year. Yeah. All right. It doesn't exist. What does exist is you find what works for your players. It's the same with strength and condition. There's many models and and there's a lot of literature out there on the best the LT, LTAD models. There's about five. Pick the best of each one. And use what works for you and and for you for your players, but it's that thing. There is no silver bullet solution to how you design your sessions. There is a wrong way, definitely, when coaching children. But if you're coaching a child centered way, there's play discovery involved. You have an outcome and learning outcomes, and you're spotlighting good moments in the game that children can relate to and give you some feedback on. Well, then you're on the right track. Another thing I'd say is a question you get all the time is what do you do with a mixed ability bunch of players? 
at a certain age. Um, and it's a tough question. Yeah. But all you would tend to do stuff like, and we do this with kids with additional needs as well, because we'd have sometimes we'd have sessions with a mixture of mainstream children that play our mainstream game and, and kids with additional needs that may not have the same physical capacity for one reason or another as the, the mainstream kids. We would set up a dual game. And it's the same game um, for, for both teams, same rule, same thing. But it's like if you ask every kid to hold to jump over a rope and you hold that rope at waist height, not every kid's going to be able to jump it. But if you tilt that rope to one end, it gives you different levels of the rope to jump. So you'll all be able to do it. So you allow the kid to pick which game to go into. And you, and you will just alter the conditions to make it more achievable in one game versus the other. Yeah, You're not highlighting weak kids. You're not picking out strong kids. You're giving them options to float between the two games. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really, really good, simple solution. A similar thing happens in the academy here. The, the, the issue is, is when the perspective of the player especially if it gets a bit more competitive and older they go, can, can the players see what group they might naturally navigate navigate to? And, you know, we talk about the best players playing with the best, but and that's probably a really bad way of, of putting it, but it's making sure it's appropriate for each player and the outcomes are, they're getting the right level of success and the right level of failure, I guess. Patience and understanding that development takes time and yeah. like that 10, 11 or the 11 year old, 12 year old kid may be hitting his growth sport and things may be happening and, you know, the, the, the control and balance and stability he had last year is going to interfere with his technical capacity this year um, as he goes through that. And to be a little bit patient and understand him um, and educated around that area so you, you can kind of see beyond the short-term uh, misgivings. Yeah, really good stuff. I'm, I'm just going to uh, jump into some games-based approach. And you spoke about like when the, the players come into the nursery ages for you, four and five. Um, here, we don't get people in for the pre-academy about six or seven. But also maybe with players further down the line, maybe may, may a, a, a pathway where they're trying to go more performance and, and it's, it's, it's about getting them to the level they need to get to. What's your view on stripping things back at times and actually working on a technical skill? And it could still be in a game, but like maybe a, a different type of game where there's more repetition around technical skill. And we call it taking it back to the lab. It gets, it gets hammered a lot by people saying, well, they should do that in the game. But I think you spoke about education and like the, the maths equation. You wouldn't give them the highest maths equation at start. You'd break the skill down and say, okay, well, let's start with the, the first components of it and let's figure that out. Let's work on that bit. Where do you stand with that? Is there any scope in your in your practice where you do that with players? Yeah, you can't do algebra without doing your ABCs. So like it's it has its part. So if you were talking about kind of closed space technical skills and drills and stuff like that, as, as opposed to the, like your CLAs and your teaching games for understanding and things like that. Um, some, I don't know how this debate came about, but it was kind of either or for a number of years where yeah. you're either um, repetition, technical, closed drill practice, or you're learning through the game, but you can't be both. And yeah. it was that kind of concept that a technique learned in isolation has to be relearned in the game as a skill. Okay, my view on it is that they both have a place and that to silo one over the other, you're missing out on the benefits of the other. So let's say for argument's sake, sometimes we, we really feel we need to work on the simple biomechanics of a pass with young children. Simple push pass, show the surface of the inside of the foot, show them where to stand with their leg, break down the skill to a slower version of what they will do within the game. That can be quite helpful for a lot of children. The problem, I won't even say the problem, but the, 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 the key thing with it is the ratio, to know how much of the closed-based technical stuff we're doing as opposed to, to the game, because the game has cognitive elements that the closed-based technical drills will not have, yeah. um, as opposed to, to stimulus. So if you think of agility, the added stimulus of a player, the, the movement of the ball, the movement of the opposition, the movement of a referee across your running path, like there's so many things and um, variables that we can't consider that don't take place. They both have a place. It's not that one is better than the other. It's up to the coach to be educated around when to use both and in what ratio and when it's needed. Because sometimes we do have to strip back. Um, and I've often done it. I've done it there this evening, um, working on body shape and at an under uh, 11s group. And I really wanted to introduce what good body shape was in a closed practice before I brought it into the game. Yeah. And I felt it helped them because I had painted a picture of it without putting them under pressure. Yeah. They felt it helped them because they got a feel for what the movement felt and looked like and the rhythm and timing of the pass after after receiving. And then when they brought it into game, I was able to spotlight it and say, brilliant, guys, that's what we've just been working on. Yeah. Do you see the benefit of it? 
Now tell me, now show me why we would do it, how we would do it, and when we would do it. Yeah. And, and that's, I, I would use one to compliment the other. Yeah. I, I couldn't have put it better myself. I'm, I'm 100% in, in that thought process. I, I, we use a term called scaffolding. So, like, especially if it's a new concept, if it's something to do with technical or movement, or you want to paint that picture before it goes into the, the more cognitive demanding exercise. And you're right, you, you're not going to spend more time on that close skill than you are in games based over the session so it's, it's only most time it's 10 15 minutes at the start and then you're going to go into a scenario or a game or and, and play out the rest of the session so yeah um fully fledged if you want to use that word we will use it with these guys elite professionals lebron james david beckham there's reasons why they've done an extra 20 minutes on isolated free kick practice or throw-ins um you know there's reasons why fast bowlers and cricket spend a lot of time just fast bowling outside of the game yeah. Um, there's reasons why athletics and 100 meter sprinters spend a lot of time learning the biomechanics of the movement um, there's reasons behind all of this so we, we, we'd be foolish to negate one over the other yeah yeah, I, I totally agree and I, I understand that the sport and the invasion sport is more cognitively demanding than a, a, a sprinter or, or even basketball to a degree but I 100% agree with you um, it can be brought in you spoke briefly Alo, about the, how you would differentiate maybe the games and the really good analogy of tilting the, the jump rope how else would you individualize things let's say you were painting the picture of body shape how would you individualize that within the group then so some people's really good at it um, good body shape good awareness good scanning some people are struggling with the mechanics how would you within the same practice then how would you easily differentiate your your coaching to that it's a great question and i'll tell you why because Sometimes what you might do is try try highlight it within the question in front of the peers. That can be a negative thing. Also, for for the player, you're you, like you don't want to constantly correct or have to to correct the same person over and over again because yeah. you know the, the spotlighting for good reasons and the spotlighting you don't want to constantly have to do. A good way of doing it if you're working at that technical base of player, I I feel, is to have a kind of part of your session in a circuit based approach almost. So you've got a small side, let's say a 3v3 plus one going on in one grid. Another grid, you might have a body-shaped passing pattern on. Um, and then further down below, you might just have a kind of 2v1 type thing where the ball is played in, you open out and pass into the next player. Every player in your group gets a feel for every type of session, closed versus um, your, your open games. You then know what players need that extra bit of input. So when they come around to that section or that circuit, or that part of your session where they're working on it in isolation, you yeah. can then choose that moment to coach them, to give them an extra bit of coaching. And not in the, like it's, you could use a sandwich approach or whatever, but basically highlight everything they're doing right yeah. until they get, and, and, and give them little small nudges, the changes they can make to, to, their, to their, changes they can make to scanning before they receive. As they're rotating throughout that circuit, whether they spend five minutes in each and then go back in, every time they go back into the game, you're looking for little improvements. Yeah, yeah. So they've gone into the game, they've come out, you've given them an extra bit of individual coaching, they've gone into the game, they've come back out. So it's your way to kind of correct on the fly without um, highlighting that player in particular within a session all the time. No, that's really interesting. And would you group then, you spoke about like the different games, would you group players, would you group those before and plan those players? So like the, the more the more competent, let's say in that particular skill, if you focus on something, would go in one group or would it just be mixed? Yeah, I'd mix them because I think if you're, especially at the younger ages, if you are grouping them, if you, like there are levels of of a in Ireland that they at the very young ages they group them according to colours, like red league, blue league, green league. The funny thing is, over years people have got to know that the red league is a higher league, etc. Versus the blue league, because parents and coaches will love to be. They know. They know. Yeah. They know. You know, and kids know, also, and um, so. I don't see the need. If you have an under 11s, say, premier team, which would be the highest league at that level, I don't see a need to then further categorize them into different stages and ages. Because all we have is a snapshot of potential at that age. We don't have levels per se. Because yeah. it'll change so much between that age and, and, and 16, and so many things can happen. So what I tend to do is very subtly within our circuit based sessions, if we do it that way, give that player an extra bit of coaching and you can also when you have your review meetings like if you if you do like a pre-season talk with the parents almost like a parent teacher meeting and a mid-season one and an end season one if you're giving them little ilps little plans to work on 
you can highlight it in that and say, this is something we've been working on with Bobby. Here's some video clips or here's some, here's a little worksheet that you can kind of take home to, to talk about with them. And that creates that stakeholder relationship with the parent as well. And it's like having a coach at home, you know, in a good way. You're educating the parent to be able to talk to the child in the right way. Yeah. That was one of my other questions, and you just covered it there. The RPs are so powerful, aren't they? Because no matter what session you put on, if someone's got their body shape to receive, it doesn't matter what session you put on, they'll get that in every session. Like whether you do some sort of directional uh, possession, some sort of game, some sort of technical practice. So they're already taking ownership of their own RPs and what they could do to improve. I think it's so powerful. Um, and something that's so simple to do that's often not not done, I guess. Yeah, and you can you can you can use constraints. You can manipulate constraints, change the shape of the pitch to angle it in, where the player is already forced into an angle to receive one way, um, without telling the player. So you're almost kind of by stealth achieving your aim. Yeah, you know, so you can manipulate constraints if you feel that that closed practice is not working and the player is just not picking up on it yet, because each child is different cognitively as well. Some are very quick. And they soak up information like a sponge. Other kids will take that a little bit longer. And it's all back to learning and teaching. It'll be the same in a classroom. Not everybody's going to be a math genius. Yeah, no, completely spot on. Um, next question, Alo. I just want to jump on, I guess, to more of your uh, director of coaching, director of football role, where you're, I guess, implementing a philosophy or a, a club environment and a culture to, to, to be able to, you know, embed into a club. How do you how do you do that with and this is something that I've seen firsthand experience and been involved in. How do you do that with so many different egos within the coaches, so many different um, levels of coaches, so many different personalities? And you, you know you want people to express themselves, but you still need these common common themes of how you're going to progress these players and, and work with these players. How do you do that? It's quite open ended. I'm sure it's taken many years, but what's your thoughts? <laughs> so yeah it's, it, it can be quite difficult yeah. obviously this is a role when I came into this role I had no prior experience of what the role was so so I'd come in having worked under previous directors of football who were, who were really good to me and I learned a lot from them um, my way with individual coaches is you, again like children you're, you're highlighting the good that they're doing so you're kind of saying look I love the way you spoke to the, to, to the player that way it's really helpful and um, I like the way you're encouraging them to play this way, you know. Um, another thing they do, which is really good, um, UEFA C, maybe not on the C license, but on the B license now here. I don't know if it's the same in the UK. They have the, co the coach GoPro or, or wear a GoPro in sessions, and it's more to do with the communication style and, and the use of information and what type of information you're given um, to the player. So, like, I'd encourage coaches here to do stuff like that the odd time. I'd say, look, have you have you listened to yourself coaching or have you listened to the kind of information you're given? Um, are, the, are the things you're correcting technical or tactical? Make sure what you're correcting is right. Are you giving feedback at the right time? Um, coaches are fairly receptive to education. Like, it's in this country, there, there, there is a, a huge amount of coaches on courses. There's a huge amount of coaches do in-house coach education where you might have the ego side of things is sometimes you do have to pull rank and just say, look, this is not how we feel children should be coached. Yeah. And maybe if you want to coach that way, maybe this is not the club for you, you know, but here at this club, this is how we feel children should be coached. And by and large, we've nearly 70 coaches outside of support staff and, and other workers in the club. By and large, they, they, they do the absolute best they can do with the information they have at the time that they're doing it. And I also have to allow for once upon a time, yeah. I began coaching. Yeah, I done a lot of the wrong things until I learned, educated myself, worked with good coaches, and got to a point of understanding where I was like, "Oh, this is it." And I still don't know half what I'm doing. To be quite honest, it's that thing: the more you learn, the less you know, isn't it? Um, but but yeah, you're trying to you try and focus on. I I don't think anybody's gonna get better by telling them what they're doing wrong all the time. I think yeah. I think we try to highlight the good that they do. We try and appreciate them for who they are. What they bring to the club uh, and you try and get them to see it from the child's eyes that's going to say if you were to coach that way would you like to be coached like that yeah you know it is a difficult one though you're dealing with human beings and and you're dealing with in the older ages the more competitive end you're dealing with results and you're dealing with some high pressure games like once upon a time at the club we would have had a lot of guys that played international football too and um, it's a club where damien duff came through Niall quinn all these guys um 
so there is a very competitive event when the when the boys and girls get older. We did we the young Katie Taylor here before she chose the correct sport, but um, <laughs> there is a very competitive end, and it's not so much egos, but more emotions can get in the way of rationality at that at that point, you know. Yeah, com- completely spot on. I think the first thing is to suppress your own ego and and understand that everybody's on their different stages of their journey, just like the player is when you're looking at the, developing the player. And I think a lot of um, there's so much onus on the player. I think sometimes the individual coaches get forgotten about and it's like, okay, well, how do we develop this coach? And like the first thing you said, relationships with the players, make sure things are safe. If those two things are in place and children are being treated well, then we can work on information and delivery and and tactical knowledge or wherever they are on the pyramid. But the, the fundamental is that, you know, they've got good connection with the kids. I think that's the main thing. From a coach perspective, Ross, because the, the, the guys and girls at this club are volunteers. So in grassroots football in this country, even at a national league level and, and league of Ireland football, there's a lot of unpaid coaches working. Yeah. And a lot of them will do that to get to places like the UK to, 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 to earn a living as a coach. Um, you have to kind of take that into account. You, you might have a guy or a girl that's knocked off work an hour early to get up to the session that is there on their own. They haven't got somebody helping them that you know things may not be great we don't know we don't know the background you have to meet them where they are so yeah. it's that kind of thing i'll always meet a coach where they are and then see what i can add to help them become a little bit better that's that's how i would see it you know yeah no really good advice like really good advice thanks Allo. um moving on now i guess to to both of our other strands i guess of um of education and, and certain passions maybe mine a bit more prevalent than than yours you seem to be a bit more embedded in the, the coaching side um so SNC education, so you're, you're, you're coach educator, but you've got a good background in SNC and sports science. I just want to know your opinion on what's your, what do you think your role is or the SNC's role is and how you interlink with each other with young kids progressing all the way through and what benefit maybe you might have because you've got, you've got different lenses going on under your microscope. You've got, you know, you're thinking about the physical corner, but you've also got the real in-depth knowledge of the holistic, technical, tactical, and, and psychosocial. Where do you see it? Where do you see SNC? Where do you see it work the best? Where do you see sports science and SNC? And how do you how do you think you might have a different lens? I don't want to say advantage, but a different lens on on coming from the other side with such good knowledge as well. Yeah, I think it, I think it is an advantage. Like that's that's. Yeah. I know you say we don't like, but it is because when I studied the undergrad in sports science, and you know sports science, it's a it's a big umbrella. People kind of misinterpret what it is and, and, and they see the GPS vests and they see the technology and they think that's what it is but realistically there's many branches to sports science as you know there's S&C psych nutrition there's, there's so many different elements of it what that done for me on top of the coaching and, and not, I'm not talking about licensing I'm talking about the years spent coaching the, the cumulative knowledge as well was supplement what I already knew and added another layer onto it in terms of objectivity versus subjectivity you know being able to measure what you think you already know and and being able to add some element of i suppose evidence or coming from an evidence informed area whereas beforehand it would have been kind of going winging it for a while on what you know or what you previously learned and um, the lens by which you look at things yeah i'd be more critical of myself i'd be more critical of practices and methodologies and reasons and rationales for why we do what we do I'd be forward focused in terms of constantly evolving as a coach now and um, in terms of the sport science end of it, the S&C side of it, what has that done? Give me a greater insight into growth maturation. Give me a greater insight into long-term development. We have an S&C coach at the club now, John Sullivan, who's fantastic. John, again, is an, an A-licensed coach. He's a, he's a fully qualified S&C and he's played the game professionally. But what he gives us is, He's very much in, in line with the biopsych side of things. He's been there. He's lived it. He, yeah. he sees the pitfalls. He sees the benefit of actually, rather than have the kids train, they could do it an extra three hours sleep tonight. You know, they've had a tough week. They've got exams coming up next week. Um, Alan, we're not going to train this week. They've already got two or three pitch sessions. Why should I add to that? You know, so John would be the type of guy where some of the best sessions he'd ever do are the ones he doesn't do. Yeah, yeah. You know, so uh, having the S and C side of things, I suppose it's it's coming back to that. We understand the physical development, um, in terms of the training loads, the the growth maturation. We understand all that side of it. We understand how exercise, how football is exercise, soccer is exercise. 
It's yeah. prescriptive. There's a dose, there's a response. We have adapters, non-adapters. We can understand all of that aspect of it. But it's helped me to look at the whole person in a greater sense, in a greater sense, in terms of how the physical will interact with the, with the, the psych, how the psych will interact the other way. How, you know, how all of these things are interlinked. And sports science kind of, it was almost like having to join the dots, but, but I didn't know what dot to join first. And now I'm kind of able to draw a bit of a better picture about how, how development is related to the person. Yeah, no, really, really good answer. Does, does it make you look at things the other way? I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. So I, I played uh, soccer uh, to, to a really good level, and then I trained purely as SSC, really, for, for years and just worked in SSC. Then I went back to coaching, um, fell in love with coaching, and probably my previous experience with the game lended me towards that. And then I started looking back at SSC practices, and I was like, okay, fine, I understand, but like, can we make that better? Can we make that more relatable? And it's, it's the same as the coaching. Can we take it into the same, you know, cognitive like demand that we may be lacking in certain things in SSC and really relate that to the game? Does it make you like have a look at everything? Whereas before, you know, you would just see a warm up and go, okay, warm up's been taken care of, but now can we squeeze a bit more out the warm up? Can we get more learning outcomes in it? Yeah, yeah. So like the, like the warm up. So if you, if you look at Ian Jeffrey's work and the ramp and stuff like that, I'd be a fairly good um, advocate of a kind of ramp-based approach. So there's one aspect that I can bring into a grassroots club and say, guys, if we're not doing S and C this week, well, we can sneak sneak ten minutes across four sessions. You know, where we're 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 working on a little bit of building up tolerance to plyos, where we're working up a little bit on our, our mobility, our activation work, and um, you know, so yes, I can see how s and c can kind of we can sneak it in by stealth without having it being overly prescriptive and people there's still you've got to understand there's still um it's a young industry here mm-hmm. it's even as opposed to the uk I, I always say the uk are kind of 20 years ahead of us the us then are probably 30 you know and that's in coaching terms coaching science a lot of the undergraduate programs in ireland are only 10 years old mm-hmm. they're thereabouts in sports science and um, a lot of the master's programs in s and c are only a number of years old so even though we've got really good, pro- robust programs now in colleges like Satanta and UL and all these places, DCU and TUD Dublin, um, the graduates are only now coming out into the sphere of, of practice and they're only building up their experience. So it's going to be a number of years before we have a number of practitioners that can kind of feed back in at that level. Um, yeah. But how I would see it, yeah, it's very hard to, it's not as enjoyable watching sessions when you've got an SNC hat on as well because you're, you're almost scrutinizing every movement, every plant of the foot, every, <laughs> yeah, yeah. how powerful is that kid? Wow, look at that kid's throwing. And then you're, you're, you're thinking of, of counter movement jumps when they're going to head the ball and you're, you're thinking of explosivity and agility and multi-directions. And, but it's nice. It's a nice way to think of it. Um, and what you can do then is you can, what it's enabled me to do is to have better conversations with the SNC coach, yeah. better, com- better conversations with the physio, better conversations with the parents if I think the kids are doing too much, too much, yeah. like, you know, too much activity. They've just come from a two-hour PE session in, the, in 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 school from two to four, and they're training at five down here. You know, and you're able to say, well, what kind of what were you doing in, in you know PE? And you can start introducing little things like our PE and stuff like that. You know, um, to help just make sure they're looking after themselves. So to, it's helped me in that regard have better conversations mainly. Yeah, the really thing just sprang to mind there. And I think it really helps with the ILP. So you just said there about your counter movement jump, heading the ball. But if you know someone's counter movement jump is really good, relatively really good, or you deem it as, as quite a good score, um, then but their heading isn't, you can kind of tick off the physical biomechanical issue. So is it a timing thing? Um, are they judging the flight of the ball? You know, are they reading the game? So you can start to delve into those RPs a little bit deeper, which I think become really nice, gives a bit more detail and, and clarity to the player. But just like you said about your SNC, about giving you know some sessions away, sometimes it's like we've had two or three good SNC sessions in the warm-ups this week. Let's give some time back to the technical coaches. Let's let's you know let's use the ramp method, but let's do the razor as a technical practice. And and you can start to you know work with coaches and and build, I guess, a, a bit more of a um, a robust program for what those players need. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I suppose it's demystifying SNC as well. I think some some coaches can be very guarded over. Well, SNC has to be something separate to the pitch. Yeah. Like realistically, SNC happens on the pitch. Yeah. It happens on the pitch too, whether whether we know it or not. Um, we never run on two legs. You know, it's that kind of thing where I'm talking about doing single leg work and I'm talking to the coach about the importance of doing some single leg work because you know, we never sprint with both legs in contact with the ground at the same time. We're always on one foot. Um and, and even little little anecdotes like that, coaches can kind of prick their ears up and say, Oh, I get it now. 
mm-hmm. you know, running technique. You know, I want the player to get faster, but yeah, yeah, he's really explosive and he's really powerful. We can see it in his CMJs. We can see it in that. But yet when he runs, he drags his arms across his body and, and he, he's adding breaks to his body, you know. So we can kind of strip it back that way. Exactly like you say, we can we can spot and fix better. And that way that brings us back to education then and teaching. We can then use that for teachable moments for the OLPs and, and for general player development and coach education. Yeah, excellent. I must say, having someone in, in your role with that holistic knowledge, I think would just add so much knowledge to the coaches as well, because you, you're coming at it from different lenses. So just from the outside, I think it uh, sounds like you're doing some excellent excellent work and imparting some great knowledge on onto your coaches. Um, just a last one to finish then, and it's been fantastic. I've loved this chat. It's been re- really, really nice. Um, yeah, it's been lovely. Yeah, re- refreshing. We didn't know each other, so it's refreshing when people have similar views. It's always nice. Um just to close then to, to, to the listeners, obviously the listeners, we've got um, coaches in a whole multitude of different sports. And I know we spoke a lot about soccer, but I think we all agree the transfer of, of the principles we've been speaking about are, are, are huge. What advice would you give to coaches, coaching at any level? What's your take home from all your experiences? Three points, let's say. What would you give to, to the coaches? Okay, so the first one I'll give you is, um, that's one I say all the time and I need coach head stuff for that is, a little one and it's not from me I've stolen it from John Wooden and you've probably come across it but it's the no written word no spoken plea shall teach our youth what they should be and all the books upon the shelves it's what the coaches are themselves and I put that word coaches in there instead of teachers because that's what we are mm-hmm. and I think who you are as a person and how you treat people will ultimately determine um, success more than than anything any tech tech you can learn that along the way but um, who you are as a person and the, and, the, and the example that you set will be more powerful than anything you can do as a coach. Um, I suppose second to that is don't forget you have a family because coaching is an all or nothing game. It can be. Um, the rewards are very few, if I'm being honest, but it, it is a rewarding thing. It's something that if you're, you're looking to pursue it as a career, it's going to take a lot of time, probably money at the start. You'll have to invest a lot of your time and money but don't leave the people that are closest to you behind in the process because in my early years coaching and I, I, well, I have a 16-year-old daughter, 12-year-old and a 5-year-old son, um, I'm sure there was nights when I was out on the pitch for, for weeks on end and I'm getting home and we're spending very little time with our family. So that's time you don't get back. So having that coach life balance is really, really, really important. Um, And then finally, I'd probably say just be yourself. Don't try and be a replication of something you see on TV every week in, in the premiership or or a coach that you, you, you'll you take little bits off everyone that's coached you and you'll take little bits of other people, but let your your own personality and characteristics shine through because if you be your own authentic self, people will get to know you a lot better and a lot easier than wearing a mask every day and, and trying to live up to expectations that are unrealistic and just enjoy it. It's a We're lucky to do what we do and we play a, a huge role in people's lives. It's someone said to me how do you know you're successful as a coach and I measure on the amount of weddings and christenings I'm invited to now um, and things like that rather than players that have maybe made a, a bit of a name for themselves in the game or anything like that it's 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 being able to walk down the street and meet somebody as an adult that you've coached as a child and then want to stop you and be enthusiastic about um, talking to you and thanking you for the memories because they'll forget all the sessions and that but they'll, they'll never it's it's cliche but they don't forget how you treat them so make sure you're treating them how you like to be treated. Alan, um, fantastic. Thank you very much. I think that sums up um, how you've come across in this podcast. And that's the hour that I've known you and just a, a really good person with great intentions. And that's really good advice to coaches because we get caught up on the technical and, and how to coach and this masterclass. And like you say, we see the top end Premier League managers and across the world and you try and imitate, but that personal connection and level is... That, just surround yourself with good mentors as well something yeah. I found of like I said James Slappy the psych John Sullivan the SSC these are guys I go to I've in my personal capacity in work I have like um, Gwen Redmond's my boss and then we've another lady Mary McKevitt they've worked in the education sphere so so they're fantastic mentors to have outside of sport so have mentors in every aspect of your life um, and you can't go wrong but, but, but always have someone to go to for advice because we don't know everything Spot on. And you always gravitate to people, I think, who have similar mindset, right? You always gravitate towards them, you know, to, to, to like-minded people. So, yeah. 
Alan, it's been a real pleasure. Really has. Um, thank you very much. The listeners are, are going to get so much out of this. So we thank you massively here from Blocker and Podcast. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you.